2 Corinthians 11th chapter. The, the Bibles that are in your pew, it'll be on 1020. 1020. As we'll continue our study of the Lord's Supper this morning, we studied about several things that the Lord's Supper is. How is it that God wants us to participate in it? And tonight we'll look at several things from this text that the Lord's Supper isn't and, and how God does not want us to participate in it in those particular ways. As we think about that and as you're turning to those passages, I'd like to remind you that tonight is also another very special night because after services, we'll have our ice cream fellowship and it's homemade ice cream for the most part. And uh, there's always plenty and it's always so delicious. And so if you're a guest, again, we, we hope and expect you to stay and, and we enjoy visiting with you. And uh, of course, everyone's invited and we th are thankful to each one that has spent the afternoon making uh, your, your favorite recipe for us. And it's always such a good, good time to get just in visiting with each other. It is exciting that Vacation Bible School is tomorrow. And we're thankful for all the adults that have worked hard in preparation. There's been a lot of hours put in around the building over the past few days. And really, over the past year, there's been a lot of work that has gone into this. And uh, Brother Albert and his crew has built, a, if you look at scaffolding, a three-story set. A three-story set for... Uh, the teen VBS, and uh, it'll be our, our spiritual rendition of ESPN's Around the Horn. And uh, we look forward to seeing how much good can come out of, of putting four men that know the scriptures well and have a time of discussion uh, as, as it is in, in mimicking also the format of that show. We are thankful that tonight uh, the preacher will be preaching shorter. No, we, but we will be preaching shorter because we're thankful that Amy and Nick Fowler will be beginning their, their second, their, they've concluded two years in the mission field. They're beginning their third year. And so we're going to give some time at the close of this service uh, to, to have Nick to Skype in with us. And then at the end of the service, we'll have a prayer together. And uh, we look forward uh, to that time uh, to be able to do that also uh, this afternoon. Also, just looking back, last Thursday evening, where you're sitting, there were 375 teenagers in an area-wide youth devotional. And that that's, gives you a lot of hope. When, when, we, when we get down and out of what's wrong with the world and what's going to happen to the church, listen, there are a lot of young people that love our God. Uh, there's a lot of young people that call the God you and I call our Lord and Savior. He's their Lord and Savior too. And we're thankful for them. We're thankful for their life. We're thankful for the zeal and the energy that they bring uh, to the congregation here and to the Lord's kingdom. And really, uh, that's a part of what we're doing this, this coming week. We're investing in young people. And what a major and a powerful and a wise investment that that is. Is it possible to worship in a way that God would say, not only should you have not done it, you've done it, and you're worse off than before you came. Can you imagine that? Lord meets you in the parking lot. Where you been to worship? And he says, whoa, you're a worse person for having gone to that worship service. What would that worship service be like? where an inspired writer writes and he says these words, 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. 
Since you come together, see that's the assembly. That's talking about when the church comes together. You come together, not for the better, but for the worse. What were they doing wrong? Well, he listed. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And then he discusses these divisions. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, that's describing cliques. And 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, that's talking about the assembly again, the problem is it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. But notice in 21, they're eating something. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? With an exclamation mark. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do, second choice, or do you despise the church of God? Or third choice, do you shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Obviously, this paragraph opens and closes with the same message. You guys are going into a worship service. I can't praise you at all for what you're doing. What's the problem, Paul? The problem is you're participating in something that you're coming out of it a worse person than when you have gone. Well, what's the problem, Paul? He says the problem is the church is to be a place where you are united and where in your unity you build each other up. Instead, you have become a church that is divided. And in your division, you have practiced selfishness and indulgence. And so what is implied here is that those who are wealthy and those that have means are gathering at a time earlier and not telling the ones who are in poverty when they're gathering and each is bringing their own food. But the problem is those in poverty don't have much to bring. And so when they come, they leave their hungry and the rich leave their full not sharing with those who do not have and even to the point of drunkenness, which obviously in the scriptures is condemned. And so Paul looks at all of this division and these factions that have formed, these cliques that have formed. And then he even finally in this paragraph addresses the fact, I can't praise you because you're not even participating in the Lord's Supper anymore. Now you can imagine some of them might have tried to rebuttal that by saying, wait a minute, we are. We, we come together and we eat a supper regularly. Listen, just because we call something by a biblical name doesn't make it what the Bible teaches. And so they had practiced. They had to practice what some would call agape type feast where they'd come together and they'd eat meals together. And there are a lot of people that try to take culture and say, well, it was a part of their culture. And if you just understood the culture, you could really understand what's happening here. It is good when we can know backgrounds on text and when we can know culture and things like that. But listen, brethren, a study of the background or a culture of a text can never change the teaching of the text or we have done the wrong thing. If there was something about the culture that I must understand to be able to understand this passage, God would have revealed it in this passage. What is the simple teaching? 
The simple teaching is they had perverted God's message by participating in meals that were not scriptural. And Paul looks at it and says, I can't find anything to praise you about the way you have stopped taking the Lord's Supper and you have put in its place this participation in some kind of, see, we can't even call it a fellowship meal. You know what the word fellowship, we talked about this morning. Fellowship comes from the word, it it literally means to share. They weren't participating in a fellowship meal. They were participating in cliques eating meals together. And isn't it interesting, as we studied this morning, another word for the Lord's Supper that God gives us in his scriptures is communion. They weren't even practicing communion. How serious is division and what's the answer to division? Drop back just a few pages. I'd like for you to see how the book of 1 Corinthians opens. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we see in the first few chapters, again, the plea to get rid of divisions and to promote unity. And I believe in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, if we were going to pick out just a real short passage to say, what is it that we can learn about unity? This would be a great little short passage. Look what his plea was in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice five different ways he speaks of unity in these following uh, phrases. That you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together. We're counting that as one, even though it's kind of three in one. In the same mind and in the same judgment. Can you read that verse and walk away from anything other than the fact of unity is very important to God. And if we are God's people... Unity ought to be very important to us. But it's not unity based on the sacrifice of the truth. It's unity based upon standing on Jesus Christ. Notice he says, I want you to be unified with the same mind and the same judgment. The mind has to be not your mind and not my mind. We're unified on the mind of Jesus Christ. So we stand on the doctrines of Jesus Christ. We unify on anything that Christ teaches. In just a moment, we're going to see in our text how that was the answer to their problem. But we unify upon the mind of Christ. Now, what about the things that Christ doesn't speak upon? Then we have unity of judgment. What is the organization of the Lord's church? The organization of the Lord's church is to have elders that we are commanded to obey them. Now, have you ever heard someone say, but I thought we're to obey Christ. We are to obey Christ. But what about in the areas of judgment where Christ is not spoken? How are we going to be unified? We obey the elders. And so when you have a congregation of people that they have the same mind of Christ and in any areas of judgment, they follow the judgment calls, if you will, of our elders. That's how you have a unified group of people. They can speak the same thing. They can be perfectly joined together. They're going to practice love because they learn that by standing on the mind of Christ. So we come back to our text here that there is a tremendous problem presented. What is the answer going to be? Isn't it interesting that even though he could have continued to pull back the layers of the onion to this problem, And he could have discussed this problem inside and out. That's not what he does. 
Instead, he reveals, identifies the problem, and then immediately starts talking about the solution. Let me talk to you for just a moment as husbands and wives. What we tend to do a real good job of in our relationships and poor communication is we can spend minutes upon half hours upon hours talking about the problem and we won't spend five minutes talking about a solution and then we wonder why we can't get along and why we can't find resolution. We usually talk so much about the problem because we want to pile on the other person and just show how guilty and how wrong they are. What if instead we could say, let's identify what the problem is. And once we're clear that we have both identified the problem, let's spend the next amount of time simply talking about a solution. Paul here has pulled back a layer of the onion. He really didn't have to pull back a layer. It's obvious. He's looking at the church of Corinth. He's looking at how they had perverted the Lord's Supper. And he says, you got serious problems here. I can't praise you in any of this. You ought to be coming together to participate in a communion and you're not participating in communion. Instead, you see cliques. Instead, you see indulgences that are are sinful and selfishness that, of course, is sinful. Oh, we better talk about this problem a long time. Paul says, we don't have to talk about this problem a long time. We can solve this problem just like this. Wow, Paul, you're telling me a serious church problem like that and you can solve it that easily? I'm not saying it's easy because anytime we have sacrificed self-will, it's not easy to sacrifice self-will. But the solution is this easy. Look in 23. We're not going to develop this because we developed this this morning. But I just want you to notice, we stopped with him saying, this is the problem. And the very next verse is the answer. Look at 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Wow. That's genius. There's a problem in the way we're doing things. Once we identify there's a problem, instead of just trying to spray paint a rusted piece of metal, instead of trying to put a bell and a horn and a whistle on the handlebars, if the bicycle is wrong, let's not modify the wrong bicycle. If the bicycle is wrong, let's throw the bicycle out and say, you know what we have to do? We've got to go back to what Jesus said originally. Let's go back to what Jesus said and let's start again. So he says to the brethren at Corinth, here's the solution. Go back to what Jesus taught us. This is the manner. This is the pattern. This is the procedure. This is what he did and would have us to do. You know, there are many things that I admire about Martin Luther's conviction to stand against what he perceived to be false doctrine. But you know, the simple principle of where he fell so short was that when he identified things in the denomination that he was a part of that was wrong, instead of going back to the scriptures and saying, let's start back at Acts 2 and let's start all over 
and let's figure out how to take the seed, the word of God, and let that grow. Instead, he just changed some bells and whistles, and the result was another denomination. Paul could have come in and he could have said, Okay, we've got this supper that's really gotten out of hand. It's really several suppers. The rich people's supper, the poor people's supper, which isn't really much. And, and we've got a lot of clicks. So what could we move around here to maybe get this click to start moving better with this click? And you know what? I tell you what, let's set a law that from now on, everybody has to bring their food by 9.15 on Sunday morning. And he could have made all kind of rules and all kind of legislation that says, we're going to take this thing that's completely wrong and we're going to try to, 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 to regulate it into some form of righteousness. How do you become a Christian? You know that part where he says in Romans 6, I want you to crucify the old man of sin? He says, I want you to take that old person and I want you to modify it. I don't want you to try to scrub on it a little bit and put some bells and whistles on it. I want you to put that person to death. And I want you to find the newness of life that comes through transformation, like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. I want you to move from the world to a life in Christ. Lord, what do you want us to be as a church? And he says, as a church... I want you to continually in your practice to go back to what I have given you. Lord, how do you want me to worship? I want you to go back to what I have given you. Lord, what if we get off course? We're human and we're pretty good at getting off course. I don't want you to modify your off course. I want you to scrap it and I want you to come back to what I have given you. And so over the next few verses, he deals with the manner the first paragraph we talked about, he revealed you've got a bad manner that you're practicing. You've got a pattern, you've got a procedure here, and there's, it's full of flaws. We're going to go back to the manner that Jesus gave. You saw that word was right there in the text. This is the manner that he took the bread. This is the manner that he took the cup. And so now he's going to give us one more paragraph, and we've got to close with this. But notice, he gives us this next paragraph to say, you better examine yourself. And you better see if what you are doing isn't what Christ has given us to do. Notice how he says it here in 27. We'll just make some comments as we read along here and we'll close. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of debate about, am I worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? No, nobody's worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's only by the grace of God that we would have worthiness. But notice, if we'll just read the text, what it says, he's talking about a worthy manner. Or have you partaken in a worthy manner? And then not only notice the words, notice the whole context. How, what did the first paragraph talk about that, that we studied tonight? Their manner was all wrong. The way they were doing it, he said, I can't even see as the Lord's suffering. What's the answer? Here's the manner Jesus Christ gave us. We do it like this. And so now he's saying, examine yourself and see, are you taking it more like this manner in the future? Or are you going to take it more like this manner in the future? Are you going to take it in an unworthy manner? Or are you going to take it in a worthy manner? 
It's the choice of whether or not you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ or you don't. And so he says in, in 28, we've got to examine ourselves. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. How serious is this judgment? For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that he may not be condemned with the world. I'd like for you to notice again, verse 30. Because of this reason, what? What's the reason? People would stop partaking the Lord's Supper in the way that the Lord had taught them to take it. How serious is it to not worship in the way the Lord has taught us to worship? Paul says, right now in Corinth, there's some who are weak spiritually. There's others that are sick spiritually. And there's some that have died spiritually. Now, friends... I don't write the text. I just preach it. I want all of us to let this settle deep into our heart. God through Paul says, there are some of you that are no longer spiritually alive because you have not taken the Lord's Supper as God has taught us to take it. We began this month by talking about just what is worship. What does it mean together to pour out your adoration to God? And then we've spent some time looking at how the scriptures teaches us to worship, looking at each element or avenue of worship. And today, of course, we've looked at the Lord's Supper. And maybe it'd be easy to say, you know, it's a good study, but it's not really that big a deal. How big a deal is it? God says there's some that are not even spiritually alive because of the way they have profaned the taking of the Lord's Supper. I know it may be asking a lot to remember several weeks back in a sermon. But do you remember when we studied about what is worship? We talked about the fact that when we see God for who He is, we are then humbled and we see ourselves for who we are. We're reminded that we need a Savior and that, as Isaiah said, we are ruined. When we have that cleansing, it is great appreciation and our natural response is then, Lord, here I am, send me. What if instead of taking the Lord's Supper to see the Lord for who He is, what if instead, like they were doing, we take the Lord's Supper to be selfish? We take the Lord's Supper maybe in an apathetic way. They weren't serious about it at all. What if in taking the Lord's Supper, we never see God for who He is? I can sure feel good about myself when I look left to right. Because I can always find somebody that I look good compared to them. Then we don't appreciate atonement. And then we don't have a humble servant heart that says, Lord, here I am, send me. We become weak, we become sick, and we die. I really believe that the church isn't losing, if we are losing, half of our young people. I don't believe we're losing them because they know how to worship. 
I don't believe we're losing new converts because they know how to worship. I believe we lose folks. I believe it's the world's gain whenever people either don't know how or they stop worshiping in spirit and in truth. Everything God asks of us in worship, it's wonderful that we can pour out our adoration to Him in song and in study and in prayer and in the contribution and in the communion. But as wonderful as that is that we can give that to God, it's a fact that we need it. It's what keeps us focused, stabilized, anchored, rooted, grounded, growing, productive, fruitful. Tonight, please don't let this series pass without having a renewed conviction. I want to worship God for everything that He's offered. I don't want to miss any gift that He offers in worship because I've been apathetic. Let's give our all every time we come into this house to worship our God who is alive, who is powerful, mighty and true. According to this very same book in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, whenever those that do not know the Lord come into a place where God has truly been worshipped, they're convicted of their sins and they fall down and they cry out in worship that truly God is alive. Maybe tonight you've come here and you know that your life is not right and, and you want to respond, not to us, you want to respond to God. We would love to assist you in any way that that could be done. If you need further study, you have more questions, or if, if you have prayers, if, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, if you need to be restored, whatever we can do, let's all give our all to the one who deserves our all. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing. Uh, as was mentioned earlier uh, by David, this week marks the second anniversary of the work that was begun in Belém, Brazil. And on behalf of the Missions Committee and the Eldership, I'm here this evening to call your attention to this, uh, to this event and to remind you of it and for us to join together in a moment of prayer uh, and recognition on behalf of those that are serving there in Belém. Uh, also, there are a couple of urgent matters that have arisen uh, in this Brazil work. And I want to share that with you as well, and we'll pray about those two things here in just a moment. Uh, the first is, the first is, uh, the Brazil team, every year they have to, to regain and re to regain and be re-permitted to stay in Brazil uh, in order to conduct the work. It's a visa process. It's a visa like we get to travel internationally. They have to have a visa to stay. Uh, and their visas are good for a year. And theirs is about, the, 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 the visa, the working agreement that Nick and Amy are under is about to expire and will expire here uh, very soon. Uh, we've been through this process a number of times before. We know how to do it, but it's always administratively hard. It's a difficult situation to work, work in and there's communication problems and coordination problems and it's a foreign country and all these things together. Uh, we're down to the very last few moments of availability here and we're going to pray tonight about uh, about the process that Nick and Amy are going through to get that visa uh, regained and put back in order again 
The other thing that I wanted you to know about is a matter of, uh, of health. Uh, Nick has been quite sick this week. Uh, he has uh, dengue fever, which is not life-threatening, but is a serious disease. It's a serious matter. Uh, from having read uh, and, and talked here several times this week with Nick, I think it's very likely that Jonah is also affected by this. Uh, they've both been very sick this week and will continue to be sick for uh, some time to come. So if you will, please join me in, in prayer on behalf of our work in Belaine and on these two specific matters. And then after this, hopefully we'll be uh, able to be joined live by Nick and Amy and they can say hello to us and give a brief report on whatever's, you know, whatever they wish to share with this good, fine group. Our great Father in heaven, we wish to approach you and to thank you for this occasion where so many brothers and sisters together can come, where there's so much power of clear and fervent prayer to be made use of, so many good and willing hearts. And we join together as one voice, Father, thanking you for having established your new church there in Belame. We thank you for these past two years, for the many sacrifices that have been made, uh, sacrifices on the part of your missionaries in the field, Sacrifices on the part of those who support and continue to support this work in prayer and money and concern and effort. We're mindful tonight, Father, of uh, the fact that your church is new and uh, still growing and in a very early formative stage. We know that there's very hard and fervent work that goes on every day. And we pray for your blessings in it. And for the, in particular, we pray for those that are just now showing interest in being receptive to your word and the teaching that Nick and Amy provide. We ask you, Father, to uh, help us and help Nick and Amy in their administrative process for these visa renewals. We pray fervently that uh, the hands that touch those applications will be serious-minded and that they'll uh, conduct this business well and fairly and, and quickly. And, Father, that this will not come to threaten the work that's in uh, process now. We know that there's a process to go through, and we pray for your hand to be upon it and to help us through this effort. We're also mindful, Father, that Nick and Jonah are both sick and will be for now several weeks to come. We pray, Father, for your healing hand to be upon them, and we pray that uh, this illness will be measured and will not be uh, sustained and will not be violent. We know that they've suffered already and that it's not over yet. We just pray that uh, as Amy cares for them, that, that uh, your hand will be there and their confidence will not be shaken. Uh, they'll know that your presence is there with them. And Father, if it's your will, spare them from, from any further undue suffering as they uh, heal and come back to their full measure of health. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the good hands that are here at Mount Juliet that have helped this work and continue to sustain it. This and the other works under our, the guidance of our eldership and this committee help us to make good choices in that matter. We close in prayer to you, thanking you for your Son and our Savior, and we close now with a fervent thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm out, Jerry.
two years ago, we left uh, left there to come here because we believed that this city needed the gospel, and that belief has been tested uh, throughout these last two years in almost every imaginable way. And it's still being tested to this day. How much do you really believe this city needs the gospel? And we're still here. And we think that that means that we are still believing that these people need the freedom that comes with the gospel. Now, Juliet, we thank you so much because a big part of our faith is uh, comes from you and the firmness steadfastness in which you've been holding our rope all this time. We're so thankful for you. I'm very proud to be part of you. Jennifer? You want to say anything? I do. Okay. Well, we won't keep you any longer. Um, I've been given the task of dismissing. So, I, <laughs> I know you're ready to have some ice cream, so thank you so much for everything, and you are dismissed.